It could be a maneuvering warhead per missile. It could be a hypersonic glide vehicle on the missile. It's the payload itself that has to be tracked. And until there's heat generated in re-entry, um, which is still not as bright as a launch, you know, we need to have that ability to track and, and otherwise we won't be able to engage. And forget assess, if, if, if all you're gonna do is say target X is destroyed, you know, that's one thing, but we can't take out the, the threat if we can't plot a fire control solution. And that requires data on speed, distance, you know, closing rate, things of that sort. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello again. This week, we're tackling an urgent issue, hypersonic weapons. They're a tricky type of missile to find and then persistently track, even when using satellite capabilities and ground-based radar. And without being able to track continuously, those who would normally have the capability of engaging an incoming missile would simply be unable to acquire the target, kind of like skeet shooting while blind. So if you can't mount an effective defense, your ability to to deter is wrecked, which is why America's adversaries have been avidly pursuing hypersonics that can be armed with conventional or nuclear warheads, and is why the U.S. Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, has made missile warning and tracking a priority. The Mitchell Institute's Chris Stone has a novel proposal to eliminate the missile warning and missile tracking gaps that hypersonic weapons can exploit. Before we hear from Chris, just a wee clarification. It's true that intercontinental ballistic missiles, or ICBMs, travel at hypersonic speeds, but the two-word term hypersonic weapons nowadays refers to an emerging class of missiles, such as fractional orbital bombardment systems, which Chris will explain. And now, here's our conversation. Hi, Chris. Hey there. Thanks for having me. You know, it's always good to have you on the podcast, but even more so today, as you're going to walk us through your novel proposal for tracking what is shaping up to be a very menacing threat that China and Russia have devoted time, personnel, and capital to develop, and in Russia's case, even field. So as you're not a new guest, we do have to realize, you know, there are new downlink listeners. So take a moment and introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, I'm Christopher Stone. I am the Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence. And uh, I write uh, papers and comment on all things regarding Space Force, U.S. Space Command, and anything related to do with maintaining American space power advantage in great power competition. So let's start with a short explanation of the problem set. What are hypersonic weapons and fractional orbital bombardment systems? What's the threat that they pose beyond the simple fact that they can be outfitted with nuclear warheads, which is already bad enough? Chris? Sure. Well, the, the threat is, is that most of our, uh, well, particularly the, the Chinese and Russians are fielding, in addition to their standard ballistic missiles, which we have been you know, fairly used to uh, over the last several decades. In fact, our current system is designed to address ballistic missiles, both the short range kind and the long range kind. 
But now we're seeing that a majority of their weapon systems are being designed to counter our space and ground-based um, missile warning construct. And that's with hypersonics, as you mentioned, which are systems that fly faster than Mach 5, Mach 6. Most of those are designed to fly within the atmosphere at lower altitudes than standard ballistic missiles do. Ballistic missiles typically fly, you know, several hundred kilometers into space and then back down on a on a parabola ballistic project a trajectory down into the atmosphere to its target. Whereas most of these missiles um, fly either in the atmosphere, they fly low, um, they fly super fast, and they can maneuver. So whether it's hypersonic, whether it's conventional or nuclear. Uh, or whether it's just a, a more maneuverable missile system or a maneuverable warhead, they have designed these systems to fly under the radar and to fly low enough that their infrared signatures are um, small enough that it makes it more challenging for our space-based sensors to pick them up and our radar, ground-based radars, able to pick them up until it's pretty much too late. So... Could you describe a hypothetical scenario, say, if China launched a nuclear-capable FOBS weapon, which is that orbital fractional bombardment system, to target San Diego, California? That's the Pacific Fleet Surface Navy's home port. At least 56 ships, including three carrier strike groups, call it home. And it's definitely on China's list of uh, targets. Well, yeah, and I, I probably should have mentioned the FOBs earlier. A, a FOBs is a fractional orbital bombardment system, and sometimes you can see a hash mark between the F and the O, because depending on if it flies a majority of an orbit, not quite one full orbit, that's what's called a fractional orbit. So you could launch it over the South Pole or down toward the South Pole and back north again, uh, where a lot of our radar systems are not pointing. So most of our current ballistic missile early warning radars are pointed north and out. Um, because of submarine launch ballistic missiles and ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, that the Soviet Union and or China would most likely launch over the poles because it's a shorter distance to get to the homeland. Now, when you're dealing with forces overseas, I mean, those, we have other smaller radar units that accompany missile defense systems and things such as the what's called a TIPI-2 or TPY-2, and that's, those are usually aligned with stuff like Patriot batteries and BAD batteries, which are missile defense systems. But basically how it works is if you fly one of these over through the south, around the South Pole and up, or you could keep them in orbit for a protracted period of time and then deorbit them when you want to, you could possibly uh, fly them through a gap in radar coverage. And then once the hypersonic glide vehicle, in the case of the Chinese test last year, flies low enough that it could not be seen by radar until it's ultimately too late. So with your scenario, which most likely a scenario would be different, it would be more like they would fly a hypersonic light vehicle on a FOB, they would drop it through the atmosphere somewhere in the southern hemisphere, something closer, um, but not within radar range to provide tracking. And they would go for a tracking site, like a radar site or something else, and then they would uh, attack that in order to blind us a little bit for the main attack. Here's an example. So the Soviet Union, uh, the, the Russians now, they had a, a FOB system with a, without hypersonics, obviously. They just had a rudimentary warhead, um, nuclear, obviously. And that, that design was to fly from the south to the north, from our southern part where we had zero to very limited radar coverage and to take out all, uh, our radars so that when they did launch a barrage of bombers and or missiles over the poles, 
we wouldn't be able to see them and get our nuclear forces off in time. Uh, that was kind of the idea. So um, that's kind of what you would see. They basically just exploit both the curvature of the Earth that impacts radar coverage because it can only go so far with its phased array system and then take out a critical vital target that is necessary for us to either get our forces off and ready or to give us early warning enough for missile defenses. But how much time are we talking about? I mean, the whole thing in missile defense or missile warning, excuse me, is to is to be warned. I mean, how much, what kind of time are we talking about here? Well, it depends on where the missile is launched from, and it depends on what the system is. So there, are, in, the, in, the re, in the study that I published, there are five different categories of missile systems. Um, only one of them includes hypersonics. There are air, you know, air-powered cruise missiles with like ramjets that can fly super low um, for, for longer periods of time. So if you have tracking, which we don't currently have that ability, you would have tracking for, you know, several minutes to maybe an hour, depending on where it was launched from and how much fuel it has on it. For a standard hypersonic missile or one coming down from orbit, it could be minutes um, to tens of minutes, um, maybe half an hour at, mo at most. Because right now, most standard ICBM threat time with our current system is anywhere from five minutes to a half an hour, depending on if, how long a range it is and if it's launched from a sub or it's launched from a land, land point. So, but, but these hypersonic related missiles or the maneuvering lower flying types can be launched from aircraft, they could be launched from ships, they could be launched from land, um, or they could be put into space like we mentioned with the FOBs and then re-entered. So it's very short amount of time and that's, that's why the, the, the paper talks about not just missile warning, which you need to have, you need to keep, but you need to include the tracking part in order to ensure the security of our forces overseas and potentially even our forces in our uh, homeland here in America. We've got space-based ballistic missile warning and um, defense systems that you say are the most technologically advanced in the world. And uh, it's called the Space-Based Infrared System or SIBRS for those mm -hmm. in the know. If it's so advanced, what's the problem here? Sure, well, first off, um, I'll just break up something a little bit that you said for clarity. There's a difference between missile warning, missile tracking, and missile defense. However, as, as our guest at, at my group's um, rollout ceremony um, had, who's in charge of the Delta IV at Space Force that does missile warning, it's pretty much part of it. What's called, it's military calls it a kill chain. So you have the warning, the tracking, and then the intercept. So our, our missile defense system from the Homeland perspective is very, very rudimentary. There's only two sites with some ground-based interceptors. They're designed only for a limited 1Z2Z type of ballistic missile threat. It's not designed to handle a massive salvo barrage of long-range missiles, hypersonic or otherwise. Overseas, we have um, the THAAD missile defense system and the Patriot advanced system um, and things of that sort. And those, those are designed for short-range ballistic missiles primarily. And they work pretty well for those threats. But the, 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 the reason why I mentioned that as being, you know, it, it is great. It is the most advanced. It is the, the best in the world. But it wasn't designed for tracking hypersonic, low-flying, and or maneuverable type missile systems, either all the above or in separate categories. And the reason why is because 
as the threat has evolved over time, you know, there, there's this constant struggle between offense and defense. And every one of our missiles defense, uh, or excuse me, missile warning systems, you know, we started off with, with ground-based radars to look for bombers. We had, you know, several hours notice as they flew over the poles because airplanes were slow compared to missiles. And then the ICBM was invented in the late 50s, early 60s. And so our warning time went down to minutes. And so that didn't give us much time to get our bombers off or our missiles, our own missiles off in time. So we put up our first series of space-based missile warning satellites to augment the ground-based radar system. Now, the first one was called MIDAS. The, the second one that was more advanced was called the Defense Support Program. And then as the requirements advanced from strategic missile warning, which meant primarily nuclear force support, to the Gulf War, where we saw some utility with it for theater missile warning, that Sibbers was created to add not only a global missile warning architecture to see any missile launched from anywhere in the U.S. or any, anywhere to the U.S. or anywhere else, for that matter, worldwide, to a system that could also monitor specific theaters simultaneously. And that helped our deployed forces overseas as we entered the period of the global war on terrorism um, and some other operations that we've done with NATO over, over the past several decades. Now, because of that being such a useful tool, and you see, you know, like the Iranian missile strike on U.S. bases in Iraq back in 2020, showing that it was effective, that the adversary has decided to start, um, and they've done this over the last several years, to make the majority of their deployed system the low-flying maneuvering kind of weapon, and then on top of that, add the hypersonic piece in as they as needed. So they're they're basically just trying to get around our current system and we have to develop our system to counter their counter if you will. So just for a lay person here, what's really the difference when you think about ICBMs versus, you know, fobs or hypersonics, you know, when we're talking about in terms of trajectories or, you know, the heat signatures that Sibbers really relies on, on picking up that heat to, to start that tracking, to start that warning, mm-hmm. you know, wh- what are the differences here? Sure. So the, the, the way Sibbers works is it is infrared, has infrared sensors on it, and it's primarily designed to detect a missile launch in what's called boost phase. Each each ballistic missile has essentially three major phases of flight. You have the boost phase when it's launching. You have the mid-course when the weapon is flying its coast through space, coming down through the atmosphere. And then you have what's called terminal phase, which is when it starts acquiring its target and, and hits the target. Now, Sibbers is designed to detect during boost phase, and that's because the rocket engine on the back of the missile is at its hottest and brightest during that point in time. Once the missile uh, weapon system, whether it's hypersonic glide vehicle or a maneuvering warhead or whatever it is, separates from that and it burns out, the body becomes what's known as a cold body. In other words, there is no heat generated during flight. And so in order, to, in order to track it, it has to be tracked by a ground-based radar system because we don't have space-based radar systems currently. So while it's flying over its, its flight path, once it gets to a certain point over the curvature of the Earth, because the Earth is obviously round, it flies over and then has to be acquired by a ground-based radar to be able to plot where it's going to be landing to alert whoever is down there um, to seek shelter or to launch the weapons and counter response or whatever it is. 
the systems that the adversary are building now are designed to fly lower and cooler than standard ICBMs or short-range ballistic missiles. And because of that, we need to have, that I argue, we need to be closer to the Earth in order to track these things on a real, real-time basis in order to know where it goes. Because if you have a maneuvering warhead that can go across range of several hundred miles or more, and across range just means it's able to change its, its trajectory to a different target, uh, either propulsively or through gliding, um, that's kind of important. Otherwise, warning is just as good as saying there's a missile coming, but we don't know where it's going. So you really can't do much with that information other than know that something is coming. And what does so we, that mean for like the observe, orient, decide, and act cycle or OODA loop? I mean, that must either speed it up by orders of magnitude or make it irrelevant. Well, it, it doesn't make it irrelevant. I, I would say that, you know, again, to quote our guest from Delta Four, the commander, the, the better uh, acronym would be the F2T2EA acronym that military uses, and that's Find, fixed, track, target, engage, assess. And that's basically the kill chain that I was mentioning earlier in an acronym. Because military, if we need to have acronyms, obviously, to shorten all the stuff we say. Now, when you do the early warning, that's the finding uh, and the fixing. Now, the tracking is the problem that we, we are having issues with and we need to have a new system uh, or basically update our system as we have over the years with different requirements. This is the new requirement. We need to have the tracking so that we can plot the fire control solutions into the computers of the missile defense systems that we designed to take these things out at the in, in terminal phase. So regardless of where these multiple, it could be multiple warheads per missile, it could be a maneuvering warhead per missile, it could be a hypersonic glide vehicle on the missile, it's the payload itself that has to be tracked. And until there's heat generated in reentry, um, which is still not as bright as a launch, you know, we need to have that ability to track, and, and otherwise we won't be able to engage. And forget assess. If 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 all you're going to do is say target X is destroyed, you know, that's one thing. But we can't take out the the threat if we can't plot a fire control solution, and that requires data on speed, distance, you know, closing rate, things of that sort. Okay, so now that that's going to keep everyone up late at night, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty darn scary. You know, what's the solution? And perhaps we need to have a foundation of, you know, where are, you know, where we've been before and before we get to where we need to go. Yeah. So, so basically there are some folks that have been working on this problem for a couple of years. There are the space development agency that has been working on their tracking layer, which is a what they call a proliferated low earth orbit or, or PLEO construct, which basically just means there are several hundred satellites in low earth orbit that are connected to a transport layer for communications relay down to the tactical user, as they say, which means basically the, the person who wants to defend themselves. And they're supposed to track with five to 10 minute tracking per satellite of whatever the, the threat is and engage it. The second one is a medium Earth orbit, which is anywhere between uh, 3,000 kilometers to 35,000 kilometers high. And that can be used for everything from tracking if you're lower to uh, additional warning capacity. 
And then you've got the where our current system is, the Sibbers is up in a geosynchronous Earth orbit or geo with some in highly elliptical Earth orbit called HEO. And so the farther out you go, you see each satellite can see about a third of the Earth. And so you put five or six of those around the equator and then up on the highly elliptical to look for the polar shots. And you've got yourself a pretty good coverage of the Earth. But it's far enough out that your your infrared ability to track is not as high fidelity as it would be if you're closer in. And so my paper is suggesting that rather than using one as you know of of all the above uh, one of them alone, rather uh, we should try a, a mixed uh, multi-orbit version of that, where that's optimized to have the best of every layer um, and not just rely on the other. Because fa let's face it, there are also other threats that the system has to address from its on its own survival than just monitoring the missile threat. So if the missile threat wasn't enough. We also have the fact that our adversaries, in addition to building missile systems that can defeat potentially our tracking or uh, warning system, rather, we also have counter space threats that are there to take the satellites out in the first place because there's not that many of them. Five is not that big of a target set, whereas multiple hundreds is to some people anyway. Didn't you also say in your proposal that Sibbers is becoming a single point of failure? I mean, last week I had a guest, Jim Caravella of Offworld, who said that our satellites are essentially unprotected. Um, and as you say, Sibbers is a five satellite constellation. So yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> it, is that really a single point of failure or rather five points of single failure or something well, like that? You know, all satellites and it's a system. So that's why, you know, space-based infrared satellite system. So all the satellites have to be there. Otherwise you lose a third of the earth's coverage. So that would create a blind spot that wouldn't be very good, but he is correct to some extent that pretty much our, our vehicles up in orbit, even in geo are not well defended. Um, they are designed to have some hardening for the environment. They are designed for, you know, some cybersecurity and some jamming, you know, capabilities and responses and things of that sort. But they're not designed for the entire continuum of counter space threats. So they may have some ability for limited jamming. They may have some ability for other things, which I'm not saying what the satellite actually has because, you know, I can't get into that. But most satellites have some measure of, of limited protection for a short-term thing. However, they don't have the ability to rapidly maneuver. We don't have decoys. We don't have, you know, any of those other things or even onboard defenses where it can shoot back, even with kinetics. And in a situation now where our adversaries, including the Russians and Chinese, the Russians in particular, have threatened in open source to use kinetic weapons against all of our GPS satellites, every single one of them, not just onesie twosie, uh, which a few years ago, whenever I would bring this up to people that this is possible, they would say, oh, that's unlikely. Well, they said they're willing to do it. And yet um, we still don't have you know, the ability to actively protect against that. So if they're willing to go there and the Chinese demonstrated their ability to reach low earth orbit, medium earth orbit and geo, then we need to, you know, whenever we design a system to deal with a terrestrial threat, we have to understand there's a space threat. You know, the, the old adage, space is a warfighting domain, is a real thing. Um, it's not just a warfighting support domain. And as such, our, our satellite constellations should be designed to make it as difficult as possible for the adversary to do any kind of damage to it. And resiliency of numbers in low Earth orbit is insufficient, in my view. 
And when you're talking about this, you were specifically referencing anti-satellite weapons, which are, Mm -hmm. you know, rockets that are sent up to collide at also hypersonic speeds, wherever they are, low earth orbit, medium earth orbit, or in this case, this would most likely be in geostationary orbit if we're talking about SIBRs. Am I right? Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be an ASAT missile system from the ground. It could be a co- what's called a co-orbital ASAT, which basically is an, uh, a satellite in space that's designed to rendezvous or collide with another vehicle um, in space or to create damage. So one of the, those options that you might have heard of in open source is um, there are satellites that I believe the Chinese have been experimenting with that have robotic arms on them. And those can, you know, come up close and tear something apart or poke a hole in something because these these satellites are designed for operating in space. They're not designed for, you know, being nailed by stuff. They're not designed for rapid, you know, high G maneuvering in, in, in the air. So they're, they're designed to fly into a certain orbit, have just enough propellant to stay within its orbital uh, slot, if you will, and as a result, do its mission for a set lifespan. But when you're dealing with a counter space threat that could be lasers, high powered microwaves, uh, jammers, kinetic interceptors, things of that sort, you've got a whole lot of things that could that could you know cause damage or or have a bad day. And so when I was saying that there were a single point of failure, it's the standpoint that those are the only satellites we have currently up there that are doing missile warning. And since geo is no longer a safe haven orbit even though the majority of the threats are more the low end they're easier to get to when you're lower so most of our adversaries can reach leo some can reach mio and maybe one or or a handful can do out to geo with limited ability but it's still there the threats are still there and anybody that that has worked in the space world knows that it's just something that you have to deal with but if this but our systems need to have some additives in design to allow it to be more survivable, not just resilient. And resilient, by the way, means just taking a hit, losing a few, and still being able to provide the terrestrial need. But in my view, since everybody is building a deep magazine of kinetic weapons, and they're showing the will to use kinetic weapons, not just the reversible kind, you need to have multiple layers over you know, tens of thousands of kilometers to have some depth, you know, defense by depth, in addition to active defenses that can allow the vehicles to move out of the way, backfill when necessary, and things of that sort. So let's dig into those layers. I mean, you wrote that there is reason to hope and that you've got a solution that will at least bias some wiggle room, I guess I would say. Explain that. Explain those layers. Let's, let's go in there. Sure. So um, as I mentioned earlier, each of these, uh, the the Missile Defense Agency, the Space Development Agency, and the Space Force have all been looking at different systems to, for the next generation of missile warning and tracking. And each of them has supporters in various parts of Congress. Each of them have supporters in different parts of the defense establishment. Um, But what I argue for is rather than building one or the other or two of each, um, so like Leo or Mio or Mio and Geo, let's have all three layers plus the polar HEO. And that way we have not just good missile warning, but we have the ability to have high fidelity missile tracking 
in real near real time at least over the time frame of the entire flight path. And with that, um, you have the Leo, which you, you can have several hundred, but you don't need that many if you are putting in decoys, uh, which will confuse their targeting calculus even more than putting live satellites up that they can take out. There are, there are ways to do that. We've been looking at decoys for decades. We've just never really done anything with it. Um, at medium Earth orbit, MEO and GEO, the orbital periods are longer, meaning that when you're in low Earth orbit, it's about an hour and a half because um, you're going pretty fast. And But as you, as you go up higher, you, your chain of custody or being able to track the vehicle is a little bit longer, um, at least at MEO, not so much at GEO. GEO, again, is just good for warning and boost phase primarily. But you'd add that in there too, and you have the ability to rapidly maneuver. So like I said, most of the satellites are designed with limited propellant for a certain lifespan to just keep it in its proper orbit. But now that we're dealing with potentially getting shot at um, in a conflict or a crisis, we need to have the ability to change that propulsion system into something a little more advanced that allows us to, to maneuver without using as much propellant or to at least have some more rapid speed to avoid these threats. And then same with GEO, you still want to have the legacy missile warning. And my concept would be you have GEO, MEO, and LEO. From so the that's top. progressively getting closer, you know, starting right. from way out there right. in high elliptical orbit, and then progressively getting closer to the Earth's right. atmosphere to, to pick up that heat signature. Right. And you have tracking. So you have, so you start out with GEO, which is like, you know, over 35,000 kilometers down to single digit thousand kilometers above the earth and you have basically like a handoff going from each layer to the other like the the geo layer spots it then that information gets relayed to the meo who then provides initial tracking and then the ground the the uh rather the the leo <clears throat> the the leo option then picks it up and does the shorter tracking with higher fidelity to provide fire control solution to a shooter down below and so regardless of where it's launching you'll be able to see it because there are multiple satellites and then you'll have the defensive capability to either avoid the threat, take a hit, but not really hurt yourself too much because you're, you're, you're able to have decoys and stuff that could possibly get nailed and it could be a, you know, a, a non, non-issue. And then of course, I, I mentioned in the paper that in order to add deterrence to the mix, you really need to have our own counter space systems in order to hold their systems at risk because the Chinese and Russians have been building up their own uh, systems for missile alert, missile warning, as well as uh, space object identification and tracking. And they're working together on that, at least according to open sources. So we need to be able to keep them at risk as well as make ours less at risk by giving them a bigger challenge uh, than what we would otherwise give them with just the standard numbers resiliency pitch. You know, I hate to be a skeptic, especially when I hear what I think sounds like a good idea, but, you know, how's this going to work? We've got different satellite constellations at our disposal. Got it. But the different constellations have different owners. And, you know, how do you get the different fiefdoms with different budget lines to work like a well-orchestrated defense system? Well, that is a, a interesting point you bring up because the Space Development Agency is going to be transitioning into the Space Force. So when that happens, there'll only be really two uh, groups working on this. Um, the President's budget for FY23 does have some funding for each of these, these options, uh, the next-gen OPIR and GEO, the MEO system, which doesn't have a name that I'm aware of, and then the tracking layer for SDA. 
Um, each of them, you know, believe that they are the answer. They all believe that having another layer is good for backup for themselves. Um, I think, you know, that having multiple layers, like I said, provides some defense and depth in addition to the ability to tip and queue all the way from the beginning of a, of a launch indication to that. It will, in addition to having the satellite systems, it will require a, a ground fusion of data that can be shared across all of them. And most of these satellites, the next gen OPIR and GEO and the tracking layer are all being designed in what's for what's called open architecture, which means they're being designed to be able to share data with whatever future ground architectures are, are being proposed. Right now, there are several that folks are looking at, um, but whenever they get to one, which is several years away, you know, that'll be an option potentially. The other thing is, is this gets back to the whole reason for creating the Space Force in the first place is the Space Force currently serves as the joint integrator or the joint requirements person for space. And as a result, they do have a say in what happens, um, but it just depends on once the system leaves MDA, which is, you know, mostly a research and development agency um, to an act to an actual unit, um, then it can become part of the Space Force or in this case of warfighting, controlled by U.S. Space Command. So, I think that's possible. But I do think that at the at the, brig, at the bigger sense to your question, I think it would be better to have it integrated as an integrated strategy that can have a single budget line, um, or at least a major budget line with some subsets that deal with each of the orbits, so that people can track and have accountability and all that good stuff to make sure that they're they're meeting costs and schedule. And I think with some of the new Space Force um, setups like the Acquisition Council and some other things, they should have the ability to do that. It's just a matter of getting people uh, to move beyond the old, the old way of thinking uh, and to the, the new system that includes the Space Force as the lead for space defense and warfighting in the DoD. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.